Let's do it. Welcome. Let's do it, Stuart. Welcome yeah, let's back. It. To, welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, hi Matt. It's been uh, a while. Of course, this is an internal medicine podcast. We're going to be speaking with some experts to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with two co-hosts, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Stuart. I'll let ladies go first. Okay. What? Thank you. Uh, this is Dr. Molly Hoipline. I'm excited to be back with uh, the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Molly. This is uh, Dr. Stuart Brigham. I go by uh, Stuart. I thought, and and uh, on YouTube, you go by Briggy Smalls. Is that right, Stuart? That's so not true. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean, that was, I've, that was a nickname I've, the residents uh, lovingly gave to you, wasn't it? Yeah, and he's he's gone now, so. Well, he's a fellow, <laughs> so he's, he's still with us, kind of. Anyways. Okay. Well... Uh, on this on this episode, Molly sets it up later, but uh, we do talk about uh, contraception. Uh, we go through oral contraceptive pills, IUDs, the risks, the benefits, and uh, some of the common concerns that are out there. Uh, we we go over a lot, and it, I think it's going to be really helpful. We had two guests, Dr. Angeline T. She's a researcher and family physician who recently moved to Atlanta, Georgia. She's an assistant professor of gynecology and obstetrics at Emory University School of Medicine. She completed family medicine residency as well as fellowship in family planning in San Francisco, California. She loves primary care and procedures and is interested in improving access to reproductive health care for marginalized girls and women through clinical care, research, and advocacy our other guest, Dr. Mora Rashid, received a BA in International Studies from the University of California, San Diego. She went on to receive her medical degree and a master's in public health from Tufts University. Dr. Rashid completed her residency training in family medicine at UCSF. She recently finished the Reproductive Health and Advocacy Fellowship with the Reproductive Health Access Project in New York City to further her expertise in contraception and abortion care. Dr. Rashid has worked extensively with underserved populations and is committed to integrating comprehensive reproductive health into primary care settings. And Molly found both of these great speakers. And uh, Molly, I think they they really did a great job here because I, I feel like I actually know something about contraception now. <laughs> Yeah, I think we covered a lot. And a special shout out to Beth, one of our uh, correspondents behind the scenes who helped write up the script. Yes, Beth does great work. And uh, I I forgot to mention, uh, yeah, we forgot to shout out to her later in the show. So I'm glad you remembered, Molly. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Stuart, did you have anything to add? Uh, No, I'm just glad they planted that evidence. Whatever. You know what? (laughs) I'm done. I give up. No more puns. This is it. (laughs) I'm throwing in the towel. <laughs> the one that, the one that. Where was that gonna go? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Here we are with Dr. Mora Rashid. Hi, Mora. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for taking some time out of your night to come on the show. And with us is your good friend Angeline T. Hi, Dr. T. How are you? Hello, I'm well. How are you? Good. All right, so Angelina Mora, we're going to throw some questions around to you before we get into talking about contraception. Mora, I'll ask you first, if you had to describe yourself in a one-liner the way that you would do in the hospital, uh, how, how, what would that sound like? I would say uh, I'm a 32-year-old female women's health champion, probably have too many soapboxes, and mother to two very adorable cats. Okay. Stuart, a cat mother. You, uh, I, I, I feel like Paul should have been here for this. I know. It's yeah, too he's bad he's out. not here. <laughs> <laughs> Could have traded cat stories. Yeah. Angelique, I would like to ask you the same question. What's a one-liner to describe yourself? Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stick with that theme. Um, 35-year-old female family Ooh. doctor with a leaning towards gynecology and a new rescue dog mom. Hi, N- buddy. Nice. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I feel like we should ask what what's your dog's name, and and then more. You could tell us your cat names. Um, my dog's name is Samwise. Nice, hmm. good choice. Oh. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> uh, one of my cats is named Khaleesi, and the other one um, had too many names, so now he's just named Little Cat. <laughs> All right. Molly, did you have any questions for our guests? Sure. Um, maybe we'll start with you, Angelina, this time uh, to take more off the hot seat. Um, if you don't mind, could you share something that brought you joy in your clinical practice or in your research practice in the past few weeks? Um. Let me think in the past few weeks. So I'm not doing a ton of clinical work right now. And so I guess joy in, um, in recent joy in my research, uh, is pulling together a, um, a new systematic review that we're going to do looking at safety, efficacy, and then also values and preferences for contraception for women, uh, who use opiates. So kind of timely, um, but I think relevant and super interesting. We always like to ask about books on the show, and since Paul's not here, I you will... took the question I was going to ask. It's the <laughs> low-hanging fruit here. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll ask a different question then. Fine. Excellent, thank you. Okay, Angeline, what is an app that might be helpful to our listeners in regards to contraception or women's health? Um, so this more, I hope I'm not taking what you were going to say, but my favorite app is the CDC contraception app, uh, includes information on the medical eligibility criteria and selected practice recommendations. So it kind of helps you decide who can use what contraception, and then it helps you troubleshoot how to start it, how to manage it, et cetera. I have to say I downloaded that in preparation for this and it is super helpful and I gave it to all my students. So I, I would definitely encourage the listeners to, to download it also. Okay. So if we get nothing else useful out of this, we've already, we already have a big win here. Uh, a very useful app. Maura, is there any other app you can uh, tip us off to? There is that. I'm, I'm actually going to ask a follow-up. Is that the one that's just called contraception? It's the... It's the one that says it's called like CDC contraception because there's another one that's just called contraception, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the one I was going to say, um, which is there's one that's just called contraception and the icon is a tiny uterus with like um, a little X blocking sperm from a fallopian tube. Um, and that one is really awesome. Um, it has a lot of uh, great information. And my favorite part about it is the section on oral contraceptives, because it's like the most succinct and user-friendly breakdown of all the different ones, um, mm. including with uh, brand names and doses and why you should switch people between different, um, different doses. Yeah, that would be very helpful. Super helpful. Mm-hmm. That's what always intimidates me about this. Uh, Stuart, any, any other questions you wanted to ask? Um, yeah, I think there's probably one. So, Angeline, what is the best advice that you ever received as a learner? Um, let me think. Uh, I feel like I haven't had one nugget that has really <laughs> stuck with me. Um, but I think going through... Um, some some permutation of, of the golden rule, especially when you think about patients, when you think about learners working with students and residents, um, just think about how you'd want to be treated. Um, and that goes a long way. What about you, Maura? Um, I would say this is sort of more just general career advice, but um, I once had a mentor tell me to pick kind of what in the world makes me the most angry, like what injustice makes me the most angry and to focus my energies on that. And Matt, I purposely did not ask the question just to infuriate you. <laughs> oh, about books? <laughs> about Which books, you? yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to move into picks of the week and then we can, if anyone has book recommendations, they can give them there. Excellent. All right. So I'm actually going to, uh, I'm actually going to start with a pick of the week, which I never do, Stuart. Yeah, you, you, you don't. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. My pick of the week is a book. I actually listened to this as an audio book, full, full disclosure, but it was, it was a pretty quick listen. It's called Brag, The Art of Tooting Your Own Horn Without Blowing It by Peggy Klaus. And it was written back in 2005, but it's a really useful book. Like It basically talks about how people don't know how to promote themselves 
People don't know how to talk about themselves without sounding boring or putting other people off. This, so this book was very good. It's just very practical advice. It tells you if you're in a job interview or if you're at work and you just want to make sure that you get noticed for all the hard work you're doing. It just tells you how to sort of network, how to promote yourself in a way that is not offensive, that, but that is useful and I think very practical. So I, I really recommend this book by Peggy Klaus. Molly, did you want to go next with the pick of the week? Yeah, sure. If if we're on the theme of books, um, I will recommend one called The Black Man in the White Coat, uh, Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. It's by Damon Tweedy. Um, I read it a few months ago, and it was just a really honest and um, I think applicable um, story of this man's journey to becoming a doctor and his experience as a physician. And it really resonated a lot with, with me just sort of thinking about what it means to practice medicine. And he spoke a lot about his experiences with race, but uh, also just his, his experience as a physician. And and it was just very well written and, and thoughtful. So I I think um, a good read. Mm -hmm. Angeline, did you want to give a pick of the week? Yeah, and I'm going to stick with the theme of books uh, that were listened to on tape, or I guess MP3. Uh Um, But uh, a few months ago, I listened to Hunger by Roxane Gay. um, And it's a, she's an amazing author um, who who wrote a memoir that kind of sheds light on obesity, race, gender, sexual violence. Um, It's pretty intense, but I think it's really uh, a really, it was a really important story. I'll recommend a book that I just started uh, called Killing the Black Body. Um, oh, I just really- got that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it is about um, race and reproduction in the United States and kind of with the theme of reproductive justice. That sounds like kind of a heavy book there. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if... Uh, Not a light read. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if Stuart is back or able to join us. He seems to be off the call. Um, all right, so te- temporarily without Stuart Brigham, but Molly, I think we should move on to a case from Cashlack Memorial and, and get to talking about contraception. Great. Well, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this today because I think so much of what we do in medicine and so much of what we focus on, you know, we spend lots of time in our visits focusing on high blood pressure and um, hyperlipidemia. And when you look at the data, you know, you're treating 30 people or 40 people to save an event and contraception just is so effective and awesome. And, um, you know, you're only treating one to two women a year to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. So I think it's I'm excited that we're talking about this. Um, The case I wanted to start out with is a 22-year-old healthy non-smoking woman who's coming in to see her doctor at Cashlack, and she wants to talk about contraception. She has no personal or family history of migraine with aura, venous thromboembolism, or early cardiovascular disease, and her periods are regular. Her BMI is 24, and her blood pressure is normal. So I pick this case as just someone who's healthy and doesn't have any restrictions in terms of medical eligibility, just so we could start talking about how you frame a conversation around contraception. Um, Do you have any specific tools that you use or guides that you use or specific ways that you open up the conversation with patients? Um, So maybe Angeline, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, And uh, I guess kind of starting from the beginning, if somebody comes in, to see me and they don't have, they want, they know they want contraception, but they don't have a a specific method in mind. Then I, rather than kind of give my opinions, um, I try to kind of turn it around and and get a sense of what her preferences are. Um, And so start starting by asking like, for example, like what, you know, what characteristics or what about your contraception is really important to you? some women already have things in mind and some don't. And so if they don't, then I'll give them examples like, well, is, is effectiveness the most important thing to you? Are, are side effects important? Um, having a period, not having a period, how often you have to use it, et cetera. Um, and so that helps frame the, the, the discussion and see kind of what different methods that I should, that I should talk about or offer information about and go into more detail. Um, Kind of starting from there, then most clinics that I've worked in have some kind of chart that just shows all the different kinds of contraception. Um, 
if your clinic doesn't have one, the Reproductive Health Access Project has a really nice one. CDC and WHO also have nice ones as well. Um, what I what I would caution you against is pulling out this chart and talking about every single method. I think that's information overload um, and really not a good use of anyone's time. Um, and so really then I just kind of take what she said is important to her and kind of highlight some of the methods that I think meet the characteristics that she's looking for. Maura, how do you split it? Like, yeah, Maura, when you're counseling a patient and, and sort of you have this big chart in front of you, is there a way, do you split it into a couple categories and say, these are the basic types that exist? How, how, do, how does that conversation sound? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Angeline. I go a lot off what the patient tells me just to get started because um, earlier in my training, I did, you know, have this whole thing where I would go in and just start talking about all the methods and then at the <laughs> end you find that the patient already knew what she wanted the whole time um, or knew <laughs> what she didn't want. So I think those are um, really good questions to ask um, in addition to if she's tried anything before um, and how it went and if it went well or poorly and what she did or didn't like about it. Um, going from there, I often break it down by whether kind of how, um, what the efficacy is, if not getting pregnant is really important to her, or if she says that, um, having a period or not having a period is, I kind of break it up in those ways. A lot of women, um, and other patients also have, uh, pretty strong opinions about having something inside of them. Um, huh. so if that's something that they're definitely not okay with, then I kind of, um, I, you know, I kind of go over the other methods. Yeah. When you, when you, and when you say, um, having a period or not having a period, yeah. can you, um, <laughs> yeah. Could you, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like which methods? Matt. No, no, no. I just mean like, so, well, I don't I, look, my, my knowledge of contraception, Stuart is very, is very <laughs> low. Right. So yeah. Well, it, it, I, I kind of want to add on to that. Is there, what, is there any benefit to, or is there any adverse effect to not having a period? Let's start with that first. That is an excellent question and one that patients have all the time. Um, I find a lot of patients think that if they don't have a period that there's just blood sitting inside of their uterus. It's <laughs> um, just not coming out. Um, so definitely really important to talk about, but there's no medical need for a period. Okay, right. And then which agents would lead you down that pathway to not having a period? Yeah, that was sort of my question, Stuart. To uh... yeah, no, I just want to jump in there and take control for a second. Let everyone know that I'm back in. <laughs> um, so I think this this ends up coming up most often with the long acting reversible contraception, particularly the hormonal type, so the implant and the I and the hormonal IUD. Um, so about a third of women will not have a period or have a very light period with those. What about what about the hormonal rings or the patches? Do those suppress the period? Um, so any of the combined hormonal methods generally make people's periods uh, lighter and more regular, but usually don't stop you from having a period altogether. So that would be um, oral contraceptive pills, the combined ones, the patch, and the ring. What I would add to that is that those methods, you you also can often sort of manipulate your period a little bit. So, for example, if I had a patient who, oh, let's see, was an athlete and had, you know, knew there were certain weekends where it would be really inconvenient to have a period, um, the hormonal methods like the pill, patch, and ring, you can sort of... Um, either extend the use a little bit longer, um, to, to skip your period, um, or, you know, well, yeah, yeah. So extend the use a little bit longer to skip a period. So you can kind of control when the period occurs as well. Can, maybe this is a good time to, to just take a step back and, um, Maura or Angeline, um, I'm not sure if one of you feels you'd be better at answering this question, but I, I wanted to know if you can just give like a broad overview of how the hormonal therapies work like, you know, the normal menstrual cycle and then, or, or what these therapies do, what changes they cause that, that prevent pregnancy? Um, yeah, I can, I can take a stab at this one. And so this is sort of your flashback to medical school. Um, but so thinking about the normal menstrual cycle, you have your menses followed by what's called the follicular phase. And during this time, 
your ovaries are trying to pick one follicle that's going to become the dominant follicle and then lead to ovulation. Um, and this is important because this, this follicle is what starts to produce estrogen, which through various feedback me mechanisms um, leads to the LH surge, if that's familiar, and then that's followed by ovulation. Um, during this time, the endometrium's building up, uh, getting kind of thicker to support a potential pregnancy. Um, and then also then during this time, then the cervical mucus is starting to thin out, which is then just allowing an easier um, access for sperm. Um, so then um, after ovulation, then you enter into the luteal phase, which then you have uh, the, the ovaries and the corpus lute luteum is now producing progesterone. Um, which I think of that as like a progestation. It's trying getting the body ready to support a potential pregnancy. Um, but if there's no fertilization and, and no impl implantation, then hormone levels decline, menstruation occurs, the, the thick endometrium now thins itself and sloughs off, um, and then kind of the cycle continues. Uh, hormonal contraception generally relies on the effect of progestins in a variety of ways, and it depends on the method. Um, but these, these, the, the ways generally include suppressing ovulation, thickening the cervical mucus, thinning the endometrium. There's sometimes stuff in the fallopian tubes where the motility is slowed, et cetera. So there's kind of uh, many different ways that um, hormonal contraception can sort of manipulate what's happening to block pregnancy. That was excellent, Angeline. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Whew. did you mention that, and, and there's negative feedback on the hypothalamic pituitary axis too, right? To, so FSH and LH are not doing their thing normally so that, you know, it, the ovary isn't stimulated to go through its normal cycle. That applies to methods that suppress ovulation. So, and that's generally when um, kind of progestin levels are high enough to do so. And so, generally, the oral contraceptive, the combined hormonal contraceptive pills, um, the implant, and Depo-Provera generally suppress ovulation by messing with the HPA axis. Um, the hormonal IUDs don't generally have high enough doses to do this. And so instead they work through kind of the other mechanisms of mm -hmm. like thickening cervical mucus, changing motility in the tubes, things like that. Oh, just to clarify the, so the next planon is the, uh, the implant and that's a progesterone agent. And also the Depo Provera is progesterone, a progesterone agent. Is that correct? Correct. All right. Uh, <laughs> Stuart, any, does that make sense to you as well? I'm just sitting back and watching you soak it all up. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on Khan Academy for like an hour uh, trying to watch all these videos to remind myself about the cycle and everything so that I would have some idea what's going on because it's been so long since I reviewed this. And I, I think, yeah, anyway, I don't want to go back to my med school trauma. Molly, can you get us back on track? <laughs> sure. Um, maybe that would be a good, um, since we you started talking about um, some of the progesterone-only methods, could you sort of talk to us about or, or explain how you would share with patients some of the, the pros and cons of Depo-Provera and the Nexplanon? So I, um, I generally pull out the Reproductive Health Access Project charts. Um, Sometimes we even have these in waiting rooms so that patients can look at them while they're waiting. Um, and I think that makes the material sometimes more uh, absorbable. Um, but the big things are, so those both of those methods are progestin only. Um, so the depo is good for, it's once every three months. Um, often people do not have a period with it. Um, However, in the first three months, it's really common to have breakthrough bleeding um, and spotting, um, which a lot of women find off-putting. So it's really important to counsel about that, um, actually for both methods, both for Depo and for the next one on. Um, the difference being Depo is a shot you get in your arm, so it's kind of a big dose of progesterone all at once. And then the next one on goes, um, it's an implant that goes in your arm, um, it's good for, it's approved for three years, um, good evidence for use for four years and probably going to be five. Um, but same kind of thing, really common to have irregular bleeding in the first few months. 
Great. And what about the levonorgestrel IUDs? So um, there's kind of different doses of those. So the most common I think that people have heard of is Mirena. Um, and recently also sort of more recently, the Liletta. So those are kind of the higher dose ones. Um, um, and so when I talk to patients about these, I generally talk about how long they're good for. Um, and again, kind of how, uh, how patients feel about having a period or having breakthrough bleeding. So the Marina often people don't have a period with versus the Skyla, which is a smaller dose of hormone. Um, it's a smaller device um, and it's good for only three years as opposed to seven. Um, and so that one actually people have kind of more bleeding with. There's a new one um, called Kylina, which is sort of in between the Marina slash Siletta and the Skyla, which I actually have only seen at conferences. I don't know. None of the clinics that I've ever worked in has it. Um, and it's sort of an in-betweeny dose. <laughs> um, but I don't have any strong, um, I don't make strong recommend recommendations towards uh, towards any particular one because it's on some level, I think, a little bit of a pharmaceutical trick to say, oh, we have all these different options now. Look, but they're all they're all pretty similar. Okay, now I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> What's your confusion? Oh, just the different... Oh, jeez. Uh, I'm going to sound very, very ignorant here. Just the different IUDs and why I would pick one over the other or why I would recommend one over the other. Granted, I have a geriatric patient population. Granted, I will probably prescribe one in the next in the rest of my career, but I'm so confused. And are you talking the between the hormonal ones or the, the right, right. So non-hormonal? Between the, between the different uh, IUDs. So... Um, like the Nexplanon versus Skyla versus Mirena. Um, oh, but the Nexplanon is the implant on the like the oh, sorry. implant one. Yeah, okay. I'm 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 getting mixed up with the uh, the trade names here. But but wh why one different ID over the other? What, what are the benefits? The main decision point is, I guess I I wouldn't get lost in the names. I would say it's either hormonal versus non-hormonal. Gotcha. Um, and that's that's your main decision point. And I guess I bring up all these other little like there's Marina, Skyla, Liletta, Kylina, and that's just in the U.S. There's like a tons, you know, elsewhere. Um, okay. Those are going to be well, your the availability is really going to depend on um, what the what the clinic is stocking, um, formularies. Etc. And so, I've worked in clinics where maybe there there's two or three different options as far as the hormonal ones, but um, it's some of some of that choice is dictated just by clinics. Um, and then there's sort of the higher dose, but again, these are all low doses of levonorgestrel. But there's the higher dose ones, and that's Mirena or Liletta, and those are the same. Then there's the low dose, which is the Skyla. And that's good for three years. And then the Kylina, which is sort of in between, but still good okay. for five years. So, and then there's the copper, which is the Paragard. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. That's okay. Right. Yeah. But I think for main counseling purposes and just kind of for your own uh, mental clarity is just to think about it in hormonal versus non-hormonal. Because that's okay. where most of the counseling differences come in. Okay. And and this does not prevent fertilization, correct? So just for those who are slightly confused. Uh, Maybe a not good question? Well, okay, so I guess the hormonal ones, essentially they do, they present, they prevent both fertilization and implantation because okay. I, I think of the way that these kind of work is they create like a, like a plug in the cervix. Mm -hmm. so, so sperm just can't physically get in. Um, okay. And so in that way, they are pre preventing fertilization. Um, but I guess if, if you're kind of getting towards like, well, is it sort of causing an abortion? You know, yeah, none of these, exactly, none of these yeah. are going to be essentially causing abortions. Right. Um, and um, they, they just kind of block the sperm and the egg from getting together in, in different ways. Okay. And so when you're t suggesting uh, a copper IUD, a Paragard, when or what kind of woman would you recommend that to? I think a lot of um, 
a lot of women, again, like I mentioned earlier, are a little bit weary of not having a period, even after you tell them that it's okay to not have one. So I think for people who either have a contraindication to hormones or don't want any hormones, um, and also would like to have a period, the copper IUD is a good option. And it's also good for a really long time. So it's good for Mm. 12 years. Wow. 12 years. (laughs) Yeah. That just blows my mind. <laughs> okay. But and, easy to remove sooner if you want. And still yes. lagging behind here. Of course. Which, of course. Up to 12 years, but you can take it out whenever. <laughs> okay. And I'm still lagging behind here. The hormonal IUDs, how are they preventing periods? Which which hormone is responsible for that? So it's the levonorgestrel in the IUD. And so all these IUDs only have, sorry, all the hormonal ones only have levonorgestrel. And they they essentially prevent periods by th- thinning the endometrium. Okay. So kind of in during the menstrual cycle, you know, as the in the um, first half of it, your endometrium is thickening up, getting ready for a potential pregnancy. But in this case, the hormone, the low dose progestins just stop that from even happening. Got it. Okay. For people who are freaked out about using IUDs, how do you counsel them about the risks and what are the real risks, if, if any, that, that we need to tell patients about? So the risks um, are very low. Um, so what I usually do is when I'm consenting them, I or prior to that, I counsel them on the risk of perforation, which is basically poking a small hole in the uterus during the insertion. Um, very, very low risk. I actually have not seen it happen, but um, it can happen. Um, that is the main one. Um, the other thing is risk of pregnancy is very, very, very low. However, if you do get pregnant with an IUD in, your risk of having an ectopic pregnancy is higher. But the overall risk of pregnancy is very low. And for those of us who don't insert LARCs or long-acting reversible contraceptives like the IUDs or the Nexplanon, do you have any suggestions about how to get trained on insertion? Yeah. Um, so I would say... In general, um, I would recommend asking kind of your, if you have, if you work in like an academic department or if you have kind of local OBGYN departments or family planning, family medicine um, people, then usually it can be training like that um, and sort of like on the job training. Um, It is, I would say, probably easier to do um, during, during residency, just because you kind of have some dedicated training time. Um, but it's generally pretty easy. Um, if you don't know kind of people in your area, um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or ACOG has a list on their website of training opportunities and organizations that you can contact. Um, and on that list are things like, um, there's a big, a contraceptive conference called Contraceptive Technology where you can get trained. Um, UCSF has an organization called Beyond the Pill that also does training, and there's kind of other opportunities through through um, on that website that you can find. Um, I will say that specifically for Nexplanons or for the contraceptive implant, you have to first get trained and certified through Merck before mm. you can kind of even, and they do kind of a training on like a, a fake rubber arm. Um, but you have to do that training before you can kind of mm. do any hands-on Nexplanon stuff. So Molly, thank you so much for sticking straight to the script. Uh, I sense, <laughs> I, I just have, I have this sixth sense that we're about to go into OCP. So I want to ask a question first about OCPs. Um, and this is more of a um, philosophical question. First of all, why are there so many gosh darn different kinds of OCPs? <laughs> and secondly, what is the mini pill? Is it just a smaller pill? <laughs> Great question. <No. laughs> um, there are, you're right. There are so many. Um, on the one hand, I think it's really good that patients have options, but it can get really overwhelming with all the different names um, and dosages. And that's why the contraception app that I mentioned before, it has like a really pretty chart of like all of the different name brands. There's like dozens of them. So, right. um, well, and- Maura, we've talked about this on the show before, and and this was a there was a study with salad dressing, and uh, the answer is six choices is what people like <laughs> six. Yeah. So there's too many. So t- mm-hmm. Tell that to your your friends in the contraception world that they need to start cutting Please out do. some of these other ones. <laughs> Drug companies, I think. Um, <laughs> um, 
And then just uh, the mini pill. So the mini pill is a progesterone only pill. Um, So I guess it's mini in the sense that it only has one hormone instead of two, like all of the other pills. Um, So that one's really good for people who can't have estrogen or women who are breastfeeding typically will put on that. So they're not smaller. (laughs) (laughs) They might be. I'm not sure. So I'm I mean, look it up. My... Actually, I think they are. They, I don't know. They might be a little bit smaller. I'm actually not. I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to look it up for you. That would be great if they're just like these gigantic horse pills and it's just like a clever name. <laughs> well, I think a lot of the reason that at least personally, uh, I would always have some like trepidation prescribing these things because I'm just worried about the adverse effects how do you counsel patients on like what adverse effects might might be out there and how common they are? Angeline, I'll, I'll throw the question to you. Sure. Um, so in my mind, I kind of think, and I guess if for this, I'm thinking of, or talking about combined hormonal contraceptives, not the, uh, or combined oral contraceptives, mm-hmm. not the mini, the tiny pill. Um, but so you kind of, I kind of think of, you know, well, what are the, I guess, common sort of more common adverse effects um, or side effects? And then what are kind of the more dangerous ones? And so kind of the, the more common ones, um, but I would say that, you know, they're, um, I actually can't quote you like a percentage off the top of my head, but you know, they're, they're common enough that, you know, you hear about them, but most women don't have a problem with them. Um, but so you might have things like, um, some breast tenderness, a little bit of nausea. Um, some women report mood, kind of mood fluctuations, um, and, uh, symptoms like that. Um, and then there's sometimes when they kind of, when they start the oral contraceptives, they also get a little bit of breakthrough bleeding or irregular bleeding in the beginning. And that's kind of just as their body's adjusting. Um, and so I kind of warn people about that. And then there's the scary ones that you think of. So, um, pretty much the risk of risk of thrombosis, which can manifest as either kind of a stroke or DVT, um, PE kind of that kind of thrombotic event. And those are very rare, um, but they are slightly ele- slightly elevated. The risk is slightly elevated um, on oral contraceptives. And so that's always something that you should talk about. So there was a recent article published in December of 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine that um, talked about the questionable increased risk of breast cancer amongst uh, uh, oral contraceptives. The relative risk was 1.2. 95% confidence interval was 1.14, 1.26. Um, want to know if you had any comments about this, this, uh, at least this one study, um, stating about an, a questionable increased risk of breast cancer amongst those who recently use oral contraceptives. And it looks like, uh, based on the data, this was present for up to five years after discontinuation. Um, yeah, I've, uh, had some discussions about that, that that's particular study. And actually that group, um, has put out actually a lot of kind of semi-controversial um, studies on, on birth control. And what I'll say sort of is um, in general, I think you have to be careful about how you interpret um, small relative risks or small odds, ra- odds ratios mm-hmm. with observational studies. Um, you know, even though it's a large cohort study, I think there's still definitely um, these, this isn't randomized, you know, there's, there's room for confounding still, even, you know, with our best, um, with our best efforts. Um, but I guess that being said, you know, there is sort of a known small association between the risk of, uh, oral contraceptives, estrogen containing, um, contraceptives and breast cancer, um, which, you know, it has been kind of in, in the literature for a while. I think some studies show no association, some, so some show a small association. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's something to be aware of, but I think it's because it's such a small effect, it's not something that I routinely counsel patients about. If it's, if it's a concern that they have and they want to, they want to talk about it, then, um, then that's definitely something to talk about. So what what if the, the the lady that you're talking to has a known family history of breast cancer or has an increased risk of breast cancer? Would would you then talk about it or would you still Yeah, so I I kind of go back to the the CDC medical eligibility criteria and mm-hmm. so family history of breast cancer is one of the 
one of the conditions that the medical eligibility criteria looks at. Um, And, and um, for, according to that guidance, it's, you know, it's safe to do. And so if, uh, if somebody is, I guess, currently being treated or, or personally has a history of breast cancer, then definitely you can't do an estrogen containing um, method. But for simply a family history, um, the evidence tells us that it's safe. This study I thought was discouraging to see that the Mirena, the levonorgestrel IUD also seemed to have a, an effect. And we, I think of, at least I, I thought of more of the estrogen as the concern. Um, although in hormone replacement therapy, we know that the progesterone seems to play an effect. Um, I just wonder if, if you, has that changed your thinking about levonorgestrel IUD at all? Or it's such a small effect that it's. Yeah, for me, <laughs> it, it really hasn't. And I think, um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe there's something there. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I think also, you know, you, you think about, um, I guess, in that study, particularly, you know, not looking, I, I think they didn't look at um, sc- rates of screening, um, breastfeeding, I think they didn't measure. And so there's other, there's, you know, a lot of other factors that go into your risk of breast cancer or cancer in general. Um, and so, you know, I think these, again, these these relative risks are, are small that, you know, if I if I did have a patient in front of me that was really concerned about cancer risk, um, we sure we definitely could talk about contraception that doesn't have hormones. But I think our time could also really be well spent talking about diet and exercise and other ways to kind of mm-hmm. reduce your cancer risk as well. Don't you love how I just I, took I, us off the rails? I think, <laughs> I think it's also really important to talk about a lot of the benefits of contraception. Um and of course, like if, like Angeline said, if somebody has a specific concern or a specific element of their history or family history, definitely talk about it. But um, also talking about, you know, how hormonal contraception reduces risks for ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer and colon cancer. Um, and, you know, you're also balancing the risks of contraception with the risks of unintended pregnancy or the risks of somebody um, carrying a pregnancy to term. So I think there's a lot that goes into the decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I remember just there's, there's some other, just other beneficial effects, like isn't it for acne, there's a, there's mm-hmm. a benefit. And then like you were mentioning, uh, someone's at a track meet and they don't want to period that <laughs> weekend. It can make, I know if people have irregular periods, it can sort of make, make things more predictable. So those are, I guess those, some people would consider those to be benefits is I'm not sure if people use them in that, in that way, but. No, I mean, I think, Go ahead. <laughs> people use them for all kinds of things. So, you know, people with really heavy periods, it's great. Um, people with endometrial hyperplasia can use the IUD to treat that. Um, people who want to go on vacation or <laughs> uh, don't have a period for that, they can use it. So there are a ton of benefits. The one thing that uh, I think people still worry about, the whole migraine patient. Uh, Angeline, could you comment on that a little bit? Is it safe to use com- the combined oral contraceptives in patients with migraines? Um, so I guess I'll, I'll go back to the CDC medical eligibility criteria. Um, and if, if someone has, has migraines, true migraines with aura, um, then use of an estrogen containing contraceptive increases their stroke risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to the CDC guidelines, um, it's, it's, a uh, close to an unacceptable risk. And so, and, and I, I that's how I practice as well. You know, okay. I, I, I don't think it's worth, you know, if, if, for example, someone really, really, really wants to, to take birth control pills, um, but has a history of terrible migraines with aura, um, then, and, and I don't like to be too directive with my contraceptive counseling. Cause in the end, I think it is, it is definitely the woman's choice, but I, I would, kind of counsel her about the risks of, you know, having a stroke and then also discuss, you know, there are other options such as the, the, the tiny pill and see if, you know, if a progestin only pill would be a good option for her. Um, for example, the correct term is mini pill. (laughs) So I've got six words for you only because this confuses me. Monophasic, biphasic, triphasic, what, and why? Um, I'll jump in on this one. (laughs) Um, so the, these are, are talking about essentially slightly different doses um, of hormones within the formulation of the pill. So essentially monophasic, there's like one, um, essentially one steady dose throughout the month. Um, 
biphasic, there's two, and then triphasic, there's three, and they're all kind of like slightly different doses throughout the month. Um, my, I guess, semi-cynical view is that this, well, so this was an attempt to, to create a pill that more closely mimicked the natural re, natural menstrual cycle and the cha- the natural changes in hormones. Um, but in in reality, it doesn't change efficacy. It doesn't really change side effects. And so um, I, I don't prescribe mono. But it can or change I, I only it can change profits. So I stick to the monophasic ones um, unless somebody comes in with their pill pack and says, I want these exact pills. And then I'm happy to do that. Can you give us an example of like a triphasic? Is that like orthotricycline or? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I just threw it out there because I had a tri in the name. That's all I knew. <laughs> Clever, huh? <laughs> so with oral contraceptive pills, are we basically going for the the lowest the lowest dose? Like, is that what we should start everybody on? Or they if they have these ultra low dose pills available, should we just put everybody on those? How do you decide between the dose of hormone that you're going to give? So I usually go with a medium dose of the estrogen, which is uh, about 30 micrograms. Um, and so that one, it, I kind of go from there. So I start somebody sort of on a mid, mid dose and then see how it goes. And then if they have any side effects um, that you might think are associated with estrogen, like the breast tenderness, headaches, nausea, then you can think about going to a lower dose of estrogen. Um, the low dose pills... Um, can have more breakthrough bleeding, um, but for some people, it works just fine. But typically, I just go for kind of middle of the road. And then you step back if they're getting too many side effects uh, for whatever yeah. reason. Okay, that makes sense. Angeline, I think you... I've heard. Oh, oh go on, Molly. I was going to say, I think I think I've heard that the low dose pills have a higher discontinuation rate, um, just because of that spotting and, and irregular bleeding. I see. Yeah, so I would agree. I generally go with the, a standard dose. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's important. Um, one thing just for counseling purposes is to really counsel patients on potential side effects. Um, because it's, it's quite shocking when people come back and they want to get off a method because of sort of an expected early side effect. And if they knew about it, I think a lot of them would be more able to kind of work through it and kind of stick with the method for longer than kind of getting freaked out. Okay. Can you guys, can you guys hear my kids talk in the background? Is that not coming no. through? No. Okay, good. No. Sorry. <laughs> I'm probably going to keep that in the show, Stuart. <laughs> I would definitely agree with that. I see a lot of women come in on the, the mini pill and they have stopped getting their periods and they're really concerned about it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm yeah. surprised that they didn't hear that that was an expected side effect. And mm. Yes. <laughs> my, my wife was always told, now granted, I've had five kids, so we've had some experience with this. So... <laughs> My wife was always told that after pregnancy, that the mini pill is not very effective. Could you do you have any comments on that? So the mini pill is effective, but it's not forgiving. So if you you have to take it same time every day. If you're off by two hours, two or three hours, wow, two or three hours, then it then you can get pregnant. So it's effective, but you have to be pretty. regimented i guess is the word mm-hmm. mm. that describes every patient that i've ever seen right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i i know that we're kind of running uh running into time here so uh molly is there any any things that you wanted to ask before we start to wrap up yeah, I think we've kind of covered the long-acting reversible contraceptives, so the IUDs and the Nexplanon, and then a little bit about the oral contraceptives. Could you just talk a little bit about the NuvaRing and the patch, the OrthoEvra, and um, sort of what how you counsel patients about those or when you might suggest those? Yeah, so this comes back to um, who kind of what the patient's expectations are for about how often they want to use a method. Um, So both of those are basically the user controls them. Um, So the patch goes on your skin um, and then the NuvaRing is a small flexible ring that's inserted into the vagina. Um, So my preferred method for any patient is whatever is going to work best for her. Um, I don't generally try to kind of 
guide patients in one way or another unless they have some kind of contraindication to a certain method. Um, so those both of those methods have a lot of the same counseling as the combined oral contraceptive. It's just kind of a different way of using them. Is it true that the hormone levels are just as high with those with those methods as the as the oral pills? Um, with the patch, it's a little bit higher. Um, and so, but it, it's, it's still, I guess, if you're thinking, if you're thinking kind of a relative, um, relative doses are not kind of the old school high dose estrogen that, that they used to have in, in oral contraceptive pills, but, um, compared to pills that we have now, the patch is a little bit higher. I think they could be nice options for patients who have trouble remembering to take a pill every day. So the ring is just once a month and the patch is once a week. Since we only have a few more minutes here, um, did you guys have any things that you wanted to plug or any specific take-home points you wanted the audience to, to remember? Um, one thing that, I don't remember when I wanted to mention it, but one thing I wanted to mention <laughs> um, was the website Bedsider, like B-E-D-S-I-D-E-R.org, um, which is geared towards patients, um, geared towards kind of youngish patients, but I think with a very kind of appropriate reading level for many patients. Um, and it just has a ton of information um, and it can allow you to kind of click through different methods, compare methods. Um, and there's just a lot of great um, evidence-based information on there. And so it's, it's done through UCSF, but it's very super patient friendly. And I really like that. And I would, I would say, um, yeah, I definitely love that website for patients. Um, and also for any providers out there who aren't prescribing contraception, um, you can do it. It's very safe. <laughs> it's great for patients. <laughs> and don't be scared. There's lots of resources to learn. Um, and I think your patients who are of reproductive age will definitely thank you for it. I have one more thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I realized we didn't also, we also didn't talk about emergency contraception. So I guess this is my just last minute Hail Mary. Like, just don't forget that that's a thing. Um, and um, for some women, it can be really helpful. Um, and it is totally fine to discuss emergency contraception. Maybe the, the, the patient doesn't want it right now, but you can offer, um, offer them a prescription so that they can just have it in case they need it. Could you tell us a little bit about the differences between ulipristal and levonorgestrel? Sure. <laughs> um, so there's kind of two different <laughs> kinds. Um, and ulipristal acetate is sort of the newer one and goes by the trade name Ella. And um, kind of the more the one that's more common that people know about is um, called uh, is levonorgestrel and is co usually called Plan B. Um, I guess my the extra side note is that. Uh, plan B is supposed to be available over the counter. Um, and um, for the most part, it, it is available, but it's pretty expensive. It's usually around $50 a pill. Um, and so even if you feel like, oh, my patients can just get plan B um, over the counter, it's it's nice to offer a prescription because then usually uh, insurance will, will cover it. Um, and how these work is really, they just, they, it's, it's, I don't know why I'm on these football. It's it's like a Hail Mary of trying to prevent <laughs> ovulation um, before it happens. So if ovulation has already happened, then they're not they're not gonna do anything. Um, but let's say you have sex and then sperm can live in your body for five days after that, and then um, maybe your body is supposed to ovulate two days later, you can take emergency contraception and you stop stop that from happening. Um, and then and also oh yeah, go ahead. Nope. Go ahead, Angeline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're mind melding. Um, the, then the last thing is that uh, the copper IUD is also um, approved to be an emer uh, emergency contraception. So if you're seeing a patient who said, I had unprotected sex yesterday and um, they're interested in a copper IUD, then you can let them know that it's also effective as emergency contraception. It's probably a bit more expensive than Plan B. Not what I was going to say. Um, ah. <laughs> the final thing about emergency contraception is that the Ella or Ulipristal acetate is more effective for women with a BMI over 25. Um, so just keeping that in mind um, when giving it. That's kind of the only method that does have sort of a discrepancy based on weight. How much more effective? Because most of these things are like 99.9% .9 effective if they're used 100% like as 
directed, right? So how how much more effective is the is one than the other? I don't have I actually don't have the numbers in front of me. I would have to look that up. Um but I do know that it's uh, sort of for specifically for emergency contraception, not for any others. Yeah. Um higher BMI is correlated with less efficacy for the plan B. Okay. So, we can chase that down. Yeah. Yeah, we'll chase and that I, down I, for the show notes. Yeah. I think important to think about the the contraceptive options, most of them are ninety nine percent effective with optimal use, but the plan B or the Yoli Pristal, neither one of those is is close to ninety nine percent effective. So Correct. they decrease the risk <laughs> of pregnancy, but but certainly not by ninety nine percent. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we'll put those percentages in the show notes. From what I remember from my reading, it was like around 89% or something like that, or, but uh, if it taken within 72 hours, but we'll, we'll put uh, a, we'll put a number in the show notes for the emergency contraception. How, uh, how does the IUD, the copper IUD work? Like, so for, for emergency, like what's the mechanism? It's just preventing implantation or is it, is it like, because they've already had sex. So, you know, the sperm could have already entered the uterus, right, by that time? Or is it like if it's the next day, it's just not enough time yet? So I I guess I'll say that I, I think there is there is a lot that we don't necessarily know specifically about the copper IUD. There's something about copper, and, and it because it does kind of wear off over time, it's the copper ions, I guess, one, create um, a hostile environment in the uterus for sperm. And so sperm essentially can't – it's – Copper is is somewhat toxic to sperm. Kryptonite um, for sperm, right? And okay. then it also <laughs> creates kind of a, a local inflammatory response, which then makes the the uterus also just not um, acceptable for uh, implantation. Stuart, I'm learning a lot tonight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Great. And and I think we've both been very well behaved. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The pun will come later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maura and Angeline, thank you so much for all your great teaching. Of course. This was fun. Yeah, super fun. <laughs> Excellent. I didn't make you feel thank odd. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll let you go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. You too. Bye. I think, you, you know, the for me, the the hard thing about like contraception, like we were talking about the the number of salad dressings and choices, like that's what always freaked me out. But mm-hmm. it looks like basically with the combined oral contraceptives, they all have eth- like ethanol, estradiol, ba- they all have estradiol and then either levonorgestrel or one of the other progest. There's a couple different progesterones that they combine it with, but knowing to just like pick a medium dose and I would probably just go with whatever's on the patient's you know, whatever is going to be cheap for the patient to get, uh, if they want, uh, an oral contraceptive pill and that that's at least a good starting point. And yeah, I, I usually recommend with my trainees to just pick, you know, maybe two or three brand yeah. names or combinations that they're familiar with and right. just, you know, sort of have a low dose one that they have mm-hmm. in mind at a medium dose one and mm-hmm. just be familiar with those. I counted yeah. about 32 at drugs.com <laughs> and my, my there head are basically a lot. exploded. Yeah. <laughs> And it drives patients crazy when they, you know, they'll be on, I don't know all the brand names, but they'll be on one and then their insurance contracts with a pharmacy and they get changed to a different one. And they say, why did this happen? And is it the same medicine? But right. It's, it's tough. Molly, we didn't really get into this, but is it, does the day of the week that they start, if they are going to choose an oral contraceptive pill, does the day of the week that they start, does that matter at all? No. Yeah. So we're, I think, moving more towards recommending women just start as soon as they pick up the pack. Um, It used to be that it was recommended that the woman would wait until her next period and then start on the first Sunday after the bleeding started. Mm. Um, That's so specific. Yes. (laughs) It's because many of the packs are labeled by the day of the week. And so that Mm. sort of helps a woman stay on track. And then it's her cycle's kind of already in sync with the pill pack. Um, but then you're possibly leaving her, you know, unprotected for three weeks or longer. And then potentially she may not even start the pill. So she can just start right away. And then, um, just her, her period would get moved back by however many weeks. 
and what Angeline was talking about, they, they generally have 21 days of active hormone, right? And then they have the seven days of placebo or seven days off uh, if you're doing the traditional type of birth control. So what I think she was getting at is if someone has a track meet or something and they don't want to be having their menses that week, they would just continue to take the act. They would skip the placebo week and just keep taking the active pills. Is is that what mm-hmm. she was basically getting yeah, at? Yeah, just start the next pack. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's the newer pills are starting to shorten the placebo period. So uh, some of them are like 24 days of active pills or um, maybe 26 days. I'm not sure what right. the longest cycle is. But and then there's also like the seasonal or seasonique that gives you three months or there's even one yeah. that's a whole year, a whole like, year of active pills. Right. Right. I saw. Yeah. The one was like 84 days active. Uh, so you, they would only have four four uh, periods a year. Well, mm-hmm. it, and are you finding that in your practice, Molly, a lot of people are just opting for these long-term either injections or implants uh, or IUDs rather than sort of going going with the daily pill, which seems it would be just hard to remember? Yeah, I think, you know, the pill is still really popular and it's it's convenient that women feel like they have control over it. So if they don't like it for whatever reason or they change their mind and decide they want to get pregnant, it's very easy for them to stop it on their own. So I, I think there's still a strong place for the pill. I mean, in the medical profession, we really like efficacy. So I think the long-acting reversible contraceptives, the pill and the next one on are really appealing to us. And I've seen some statistic that uh, something like 40% of women in medicine who use contraception have an IUD. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, and then certainly in it's patients bad at taking pills. <laughs> yeah, that could be too. And we never want to go back to the doctor, but that's right. Um, I think in, Copper in IUD patients, all the way. it's sorry, more like, sorry, I, need, I need to shut up. Oh, no problem. No. <laughs> um, in patients, I, th- I think it's maybe only more like 10 to 15% of, of women using comp- contraception choose an IUD. Okay. Something else I read that just might be useful information for the audience when if if a woman is on hormonal contraception and her menses stops, when she stops taking the hormonal contraception within three months, she should start to have periods again. If she doesn't, then you would you would proceed with the normal workup for amenorrhea um, because that that would not be expected uh, regardless of the method from what I was reading. So. Yeah, I would say the only exception to that might be depo, since mm-hmm. that can have a pretty prolonged, but certainly sure. for the OCPs, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else, Molly, that you wanted to to get into before we uh, go to the outro here? No, I think this was a great overview, unless uh, Stuart had any more questions. Or... Well, we didn't talk about tubal ligation. We didn't talk about uh, vasectomy. And, yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about condoms. Yeah, we didn't talk about. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about. Uh, there's a lot of things we didn't talk about. Actually, I think it's I think a big topic. It. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we we talked about the hormonal ones um, and some of the newer stuff. So I think it's I think it's useful. Basically, basically, Matt aired his dirty laundry on his uh, educational holes. Yeah, <laughs> I always yeah. <laughs> Uh, is education holes a thing, Stuart? <laughs> you know <laughs> what? Hole. I don't think so. Brain hole. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yes. But we're here to we learn. That's here. okay. But, but what we should say about condoms is that, you know, we always got to remember, remind your patients that birth control does not protect against sexually transmitted infections, which right. Is, right. is written in every textbook. I think that doctors know that patients don't always know that. And that's, they also uh, don't read textbooks. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think the other thing I want to stress is, is what both Mara and Angeline were saying was that the best method is the method that's going to work for the woman. And so really taking away kind of our paternalistic recommendations and just being open-minded to their wants. And sometimes those wants are kind of surprising to us that, you know, they might be saying, I'm not trying to get pregnant, but I'm fine if I do. And you're talking to, you know, a single 18 year old and it's (laughs) hard for us in medicine to, to be okay with that because we spend so much time planning our lives and we're all about delayed gratification. And, um, you know, I think we just have to be okay with the idea that some people are fine with not planning their pregnancy and then just recommend that they take folic acid and <laughs> yeah. if they change their mind, we're there for them. So, Right. Well, let's go to the outro here. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. It sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> you can find show notes along with Lake Steady articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. 
Stuart, I think we mentioned all of them tonight. For once, I think. Wait, <laughs> books, did we? Oh, yeah, lots I'll of books. Bet. No, no books, sorry. When you were gone, Stuart. <laughs> oh, you, we missed it? Oh, yeah. We, we There was like four book recommendations when your call had cut out. Oh, uh, my gosh. You could sign up to receive our very popular mailing list where you will receive a weekly copy of our show notes summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice. Get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, and I'll plug my Twitter, which is doctor at Dr. Matthew Watto. Seriously, so you're Check me out yourself? on there. <laughs> yeah, I want I want to I'll mix it up with the fans on Twitter. Okay, sure, why not? <laughs> and I'm going to let ladies go first. Okay. Uh, thank you. And I'm Molly Hoyblein. And this is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham at Brigham SK on Twitter. Have a good night. And don't follow Paul, don't follow Paul Williams on Twitter. <laughs> don't. <laughs> don't even look for him. <laughs>